This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the last episode of the first season of The Booze Hustle. But don't worry, we'll be back again with brand new episodes in the fall with more incredible guests. In the meantime, if you miss us, feel free to follow us on our socials. We're at The Booze Hustle on Instagram. If you want to send us a note, theboozehustle at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. That way, when our new episodes drop, you won't miss a thing. Until then, thank you so much for listening. Cheers. On this episode of The Booze Hustle, we talked to James Molesworth, senior editor of Wine Spectator magazine. Over the last 40 years, Wine Spectator has set the bar for wine ratings, industry news, and profiles of wine and spirit luminaries. And for better or worse, they hold a lot of power in shaping consumer perspective. James has spent the last 25 years traveling the world tasting, reviewing, writing about wines, and ultimately helping shape wine culture as we know it today. We discussed how he got his start in wine, his love of vinyl and jazz, and what it's like to taste an unbelievable amount of wine every day. It was really great talking to him. I hope you enjoy. So I have to say, anyone who eats food or drinks probably looks at your profession as a dream job. But I also work in wine and spirits and know that a lot of people think that I have a dream job and it's actually quite a nightmare. So (laughs) my question is to you. Is there still a great balance in the dream uh, side versus uh, minutia side for you? Well, I wouldn't say that it's a nightmare for me, uh, <laughs> but there are periods that are um, startlingly not fun <laughs> at times. Um, mm. But no, I, I mean, the balance is pretty good. The reality is I get to cover the regions the way I want to cover them. Um, I get I have, you know, I work for a magazine that has the resources to let me do things independently um, uh, and you just have to remember that there's always something new to learn and check your ego at the door. And every time I might turn someone on the wine in turn, someone else might turn me onto something and you just want to keep that perpetual motion machine going. Yeah. And I imagine the last couple of years have been pretty tricky for you, uh, without traveling as much. So how have you navigated that? Yeah. The COVID two years has been difficult. I mean, I haven't been to France for work uh, since it started. So we're going on uh, into year three now. Uh, That's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Um, The the flip side was I was able to start getting to California more often. And just so folks know, I cover 
uh, Bordeaux and Rhone in France, and I cover California Cabernet and now Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, once the dust settled down from that first rather hellish six months of the, the pandemic, I have been able to double down on California and get there more often. So, you know, for every downside, there's an upside. I can't complain. I, I've still been able to get around and do as best I can. Yeah. And I saw that you recently expanded your beat a little bit and now you're covering Pinot as well. So I was yeah. wondering, you know, there's, um, I think, five senior editors. Is that is that correct? Oh, uh, now I got to count, but you can ask your question while I count in my, in my head. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, is it kind of like you have your beat, but like, does anyone have uh, one that you're like really jealous of that you're, you kind of wish you had that one too? Um, no, I mean, I'm jealous of all of them because they're, they're all great regions that we cover. I love Champagne, which yeah. my colleague Allison Napius covers. I love uh, Piedmont, which my colleague Bruce Anderson covers. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of stuff out there that I wish I could cover. Mm -hmm. um, but trust me, my plate is more than full right sure. now, so I'm not looking to gain any more territory. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about where you started to where you are today. I, you know, did a little homework on you. I saw you studied anthropology. Um, what did you think your life was going to look like 25 years later from being your, in your studies in school? Yeah. So I, I went to UMass, um, and started, uh, as a declared anthropology major right off the bat, I had read Claude Levi-Strauss in high school and uh, add in uh, Indiana Jones movies. And, you know, <laughs> 18-year-old kid from Queens, I thought, well, I'll just be the coolest Indiana Jones dude ever and I'll be an anthropologist. That's amazing. And, you know, you do that for four years and you realize that um, not only are you not an anthropologist, but you have to go back to grad school for four more years to be an anthropologist. So I said, mm -hmm. well, let's pull the plug on that. Um, I'd also picked up an Afro-Am studies uh, minor along the way, and jazz music was actually what I was really into at the time. Oh, very cool. Um, I'd done some radio stuff and, uh, and uh, work on jazz and promotion, concert promotion, that sort of stuff. So I came to New York thinking, okay, capital jazz uh, in the world, and this, this will be easy. And I had more doors slammed in my face in my first few weeks, uh, bouncing around looking for a job than um, ever before <laughs> in my life. So I saw an ad for... Uh, a wine shop that had a, basically a stock position open. Hmm. And my dad uh, was an English professor for many years at Queens College, and one of his uh, colleagues was the wife of Steve Tanzer. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, let me ask my friend to see if Steve will write you a letter of recommendation hmm. for this stock boy position. So I walked into this store unannounced for my interview and gave the owner the letter, and he's, you know, he's looking at it, looking down, looking up at me, and he's like, who are you? <laughs> like, how do you have this letter from Steve Tanzer? I'm like, I don't know. My dad just said to bring it in and wow. you know, see what happens. So uh, I don't know if it worked or not, but I got the job in the wine shop and I took I'm going to guess knowing retailers, it worked because yeah, uh, most retailers <laughs> would be a little surlier, I think, at the outset. But they're like, well, Tanzer yeah. knows I mean, my I grew shop. up with wine. Yeah, I mean, uh, I grew up with wine. My, my parents were Francophiles. They entertained often a lot of academics around the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those conversations would go on for hours. And, and so I, I knew that it was something to be appreciated and enjoyed. I drank it in college, but obviously I didn't really know anything or take mm -hmm. it seriously. And on a college budget, you know, it was Gwinnock, uh, Lake County, Petite Syrah most of the time or, or Jabalay, uh, mm -hmm. Parallel 45, Cote d'Aron. Which is way fancier planted. than what most college people are drinking. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> no complaints. The, the, the seeds were planted, and there was also a lot of travel with my uh, parents mm -hmm. growing up. Uh, France, in particular, I was in the Rhone as a young boy with my dad, and that that left a big impression on me. So, and you spend a lot of time covering Rhone now. Um, mm -hmm. What would you say, like, of of the areas you cover, is your favorite place? I'm sure they're all wonderful for different reasons, but do you have one that you you just can't wait to get back to every time you leave? 
Yeah, I, I mean, most people who know me know the Rhone is my favorite region. I, I mean, that impression it made on me as a young person was very uh, intense, and I love the, um, the people there. I love the culture, the the food, the 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 sun baked Southern Rhone, as well as the you know the differences that you get when you move up into the Northern Rhone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say that I don't love all the other regions and and areas that I'm covering. I would I would say the Rhone has my heart, Bordeaux has my respect, and California has my sort of you know, dream ending uh, when it's all said and done, I might finish up in California. So really? it's, it's a good spread. Yeah, I'm a New York native. I love it here. But, uh, you know, it has its ups and downs being in New York as moving to California would. But the more time I spend in California, the more I feel like, yeah, I, I could probably do this. Yeah, I love California, too. I, I go out there and visit friends and I always have a really great time. But I feel like when I go to Europe, I I get this sense of the, if I spend any more time here, I'm going to move here. Because it's kind of like you're unplugging a little bit from the matrix that we live in in the U.S. And mm-hmm. you're kind of like, this is a breath of fresh air. And and I can't stay any longer or I just won't go back. Um, so um, it's amazing that you bounce around enough and you still still love it here. I mean, that may be why. I mean, I get the breather when I'm out there. And then when I'm back in New York, you know, you appreciate it more. And and uh, I think maybe that mix is just kind of a perfect balance right now, which makes sense. I'm a Libra, so I like that little bit of this and yep. that and everything. The balance. Oh, yeah. You spend some time in the most beautiful places in the world, and then you go back to Manhattan where it smells like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it also has just all the wines in the world are, are here at your fingertips uh, along with everything True. else that goes with it. So True. All right. So you navigated uh, your career by starting out in retail. And then right. um, I, I read that you became a SOM. Where, where was that? So I did retail for a few years and then... Uh, Went to the 21 Club here in Midtown Manhattan, which is a classic, you know, blue blazer, blue blood, lawyer, banker, old school, mm-hmm. uh, old Bordeaux, German Riesling, Tuscany, that sort of stuff. I was a sommelier there for a year. Um, and uh, I had fun doing it, but I also realized that I was really not maybe the people person to handle that sort of uh, position. Um, <laughs> and, and let's face it, you know, hospitality is incredibly hard work, which is why I always tip my cap to all my friends in the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that for a year. Uh, I, I had no idea what might have come of it, but I bumped into an old friend um, from the wine shop. And, he, you know, he basically said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working nights and opening bottles. And he said, well, how'd you like to to come to Wine Spectator and work days and open bottles? Um, they were growing the tasting wow. department. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was Bruce Anderson, who's uh, still at Wine Spectator now. He covers uh, Italy and, and Burgundy for us. Um, and started there in 96. I think I have that right. And here I am, uh, 25 Your bio says 97. 97, okay, 97, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I said, don't pin me down on dates. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, but I was I only remember that, though, because it, it, it added up to a nice even 25 years. Yep. I was going to say, that's that's quite that's a quarter I, I, of a century at Spectator, I man. Think, I think Feb 1 might might be the anniversary. It's, so it's that's impressive. Yeah. Man, what a great opportunity to just kind of, um, you know, meet the right people and be in the right position to to get a career path like that. That's in, that's incredible. And I'm sure you you probably had an incredible palate then, or they would have never considered you for a position in a tasting. I mean, room. I, I mean, I think t- that's that opens up a, a broader range of questions, like how do you become a taster? And I think there's innate ability, and I think there's learned ability, and I think mm-hmm. everyone has a combination of the two. But it's one, everyone leans to the other. And then you have to balance it with with the other one. I, when I started there, as I said, I was setting up the tastings for the for the tasters at the time. And so, in addition to having tasted only Burgundy for three years at retail, and then going to to the Somland at 
21 club and tasting all the old classics, I show up at Wine Spectator and all of a sudden it's South Africa, Greece, uh, you know, everything else in addition to all the stuff that I had tasted. Mm. And they were tasting blind there, which I had the rubric for. So I'll, I'll just back it up to go back to the store. When I worked at the retail shop, there was three people, the owner, the manager, and myself. And uh, every day the manager would cook on a hot plate lunch for the three of us, which for me as a 21-year-old making $20,000 a year, I was stoked to have a free lunch every day. Yeah, shift um, meal. The sh yep, the shop was about the size of 400 square feet. We didn't do walk-in trade. It was all phone business. Mm -hmm. And so they, the owner would go downstairs and he'd pull up a bag of bagged wine or two for lunch and pour it and say, figure it out. Tell me what it is. Love and that. I did that every day for three years. So that was, you know, the rubric was put in place. Mm -hmm. The restaurant broadened the horizons and I get to Wine Spectator where they where we taste blind and we're very committed to that. So I was comfortable with that. And, uh, you know, I just, as a, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and I, I tasted everything that came through the through the tasting room for a couple of years. And then eventually one of the senior editors and tasters did leave, which was a little unusual at the time. Uh, and they said, you're next man up. And the rest is history. That's incredible. I, I talk to people a lot about, you know, developing tasting skills. And obviously I do, um, you know, education in my role, but, you know, people in the world, when you're, I'm out in the world doing trade events and they always ask, like, how do you, how do you taste the same things? And, and it's, it's really all about like kind of calibrating your palate along with what other people are calibrating to as well to kind of get a very similar vocabulary and an understanding of, of things. Um, and I, I feel like you never stop evolving from that. I feel like there's like so many stages that you go through when you're learning how to taste wines. Um, where you are in your career now, do you still have um, anything you struggle with when you're tasting wine or, or trying to figure anything out? Is there any one particular thing that's kind of like you can't, it's that one thing you can't figure out? Um, I don't know if it's, if there's one thing, I think, it's when you come into new paradigms that you have to sort of reset your the limits that you you have on you that you may not be aware of. Right. That's probably tricky, but I always correlate, you know, experience to a bookshelf. You get your first book and you put it on the right smack in the middle of the bookshelf or right on the end where it's leaning against something. And then you start to fill in all the other books and maybe you've alphabetized them, maybe you haven't. But at one point like you suddenly have to like move everything. Mm to one side or the other and restart the shuffling. And that's what I feel like tasting is like. So each new wine that I taste, even if it's from a region I've never experienced or a grape I've never had before, I have to readjust the whole mental bookshelf for that. And actually I find that fun. So yeah, there might be things that are, are new to me that I might you know, struggle with because I haven't had them before. But mm -hmm. when you have that broader bookshelf uh, to rely on, it becomes uh, maybe not easy to fit them in, but that you have the frame of reference to put them in somewhere. And that's sure. what's fascinating to me. You know, I just thought of uh, COVID, all these people that get, uh, what's it called? Um, I forget what it's called. Well, you lose your sense of taste and smell. Mm -hmm. That would be impossible for you. Do you walk around Manhattan in a hazmat suit? Uh, it is. The, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm vaxxed and boosted, um, but, you know, I, I travel alone. I work alone, uh, not oh, because of COVID, but thankfully, um, it is my my greatest nightmare through this pandemic. Yeah. Personal nightmare for me would be to lose my sense of smell for any period of time. Holy shit. Your entire profession is based around what yeah. you can taste and reflect on. And um, 
That's that would be crazy. Well, I I hope that um you you have like a little mini hazmat suit for your tongue and your nose. <laughs> you're protected. Yeah. Um yeah, and you and I, you're you're on a plane a lot as well. I read an article that you did a couple weeks ago about the Finger Lakes. I wanted to talk to you about that a little bit because I talked to Nova Catamadre on Monday and she's doing some really incredible stuff up there and you know, we were talking about how that is a region where it's I think mainstream or in, in general consciousness of wine regions, it's very underrated. Um, you know, the winemakers up there would argue it's some of the best wines that they're producing. Some of the Rieslings and Gortschmieners are just unbelievably beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were talking about the size of the U.S. and how we're really just making wine and like a part of it. Are there other places in the U.S. That you think have the the capacity or the potential to to really be developed in the way that we can, or even Canada in a bigger scale. That's the million dollar question. Maybe more so, depending on you know who's investing in the industry. I think the Finger Lakes is clearly demonstrating that they can produce world class wine. Mm-hmm. The question now is how do they get it out into the mainstream, as you say. Um, then there's the flip side reality of the wine industry. How many Texas wines have you tried? Arizona, Virginia. Uh, other areas in the U.S. that have, you know, maybe a couple generations of grape growing history, but maybe mm-hmm. not wine culture per se. Um, you know, you never see those at the auction market. You never see them on wine lists. There's nobody scrambling for those wines. How much of that is actual quality versus just market perception? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's a different ball of wax to deal with. I think some of the high elevation desert stuff from Arizona is interesting. Will they ever get there? I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. the, it's taken the Finger Lakes you know, since uh, blanking on the name came over, the guy who developed uh, Weimer came over and other people to get the Finger Lakes, even on a grape that works for them. Mm-hmm. And that took two generations, if not three. Um, long Island's been doing it since the 1970s. And I would say Long Island still has a long way to go. There's there's mm-hmm. only one or two, uh, you know, serious players out there, in my opinion. Um, so potential, I think potential is always there. I mean, if you look around the world at some of the regions that no one even talked about a generation ago that are now being loved today. I think right. the potential's there thanks to technology, thanks to climate change. If you want to say thanks to climate change, we're due to climate change. So potential's there. It's the it's actually putting it into reality. That's the different thing. Yeah. And it's 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 also like, is it the demand there for it? Because you can produce the wine, but will people buy it? Will they be interested in it? And you know, I live in Connecticut. There's a lot of wineries here. Yeah. Connecticut, another one too. There's some uh Sharp Hill used to uh, make some yep. good stuff. I haven't had it in a while. Um I mean, there, it can be done, but, you know, if people want to chase it? after, yeah, someone's <laughs> going to buy it right. and getting them to buy it. And and it's interesting to talk about that because, you know, as a journalist, I might, I do talk about the Finger Lakes often and I try to get mm-hmm. people to taste it, but I'm not sure who's listening at a certain right. point. What's up with Canadian wine? I ha- a friend of mine is an actress and they were shooting uh, a show in Vancouver uh, and she was like, you know, everywhere you go, it's just Canadian wine. And with very mixed, you know, quality levels, and uh, but they're very adamant about their wine, and and you would think, you know, based on like the climate there and in certain areas, like you could produce some great wine. Why don't we see more Canadian wine down here? I, you know, I don't cover Canada specifically, but they may have something to do with similar to Finger Lakes or Long Island, where they have a captive audience there. There isn't the impetus to get it into the wider distribution channels. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know what the taxes might be coming over from Canada and the U.S. that might make the wines that much more untenable for American consumers. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure it's a mix of all that that they've and, and some other things that I'm, I'm unaware of. But 
you know, Long Island has never historically gotten their wines into broad distribution. They barely get them into New York City and they have the country's largest metropolitan area an hour and a half from their from their tasting room doors. So, you know, part of it may be the, the industry itself not pushing. Um, and I, I get it when regions like that are essentially jingoistic and, and they only want to talk about their own wines and they think their own wines are the best thing. <laughs> but the flip side is if they're not out there tasting the competition, essentially, and what else is in the rest of the world, they may be missing, they may have a really large blind spot for what it is they're doing well or not doing well. And then yeah. that plays out in the market. Yeah, I could see how that would be. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You got a lot of records behind you, man. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm a I'm a vinyl head. I have been since uh, since a teenager. Um, some of the radio stuff I did was uh, jazz DJing and things like that. So yeah, it's uh, it's my love. All right. So them. what's what are the top? Okay, this is going to be hard, obviously, because you have a lot mm-hmm. of music there. But you have a top three that you play on a regular rotation. Like when you can't decide, there's always the one you go the old go to. What are like right. the top three that you pull out? Yeah, I mean, you know, it'll be kind of blue by Miles Davis. That's kind of like Perfect. pulling driver on the first hole of the first tee. Um, <laughs> Love, Love Supreme by Coltrane is, uh, get played played a lot. Um, you know, there's other sort of stalwart albums, but um, I, I don't want to say I get stuck in ruts, but I definitely go through phases mm-hmm. uh, where I'll, I'll just hone in on a particular producer or, or artist or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those two, I mean, kind of blue and Love Supreme, I, I don't think I could function without. Good choices. Good for all occasions, truly. 
That's awesome. So there's um, a gentleman named uh, Jermaine Stone who does. Uh, I'm actually crew love. This is his. I see that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Representing. So he does uh, wine and hip hop and music pairings. And um, do you follow that at all? It's really interesting. I, I do. Uh, I was actually a guest on his uh, podcast, uh, the Wine and Hip Hop Show. And oh, we've nice. Become, yeah, we've become good friends. I have a lot of respect for Jermaine. Uh, he and I have a lot of parallels. Actually, starting. Uh, you know, basically moving boxes yep. around and then working our way up um, and tremendous love for music and New York native. And, and we've we've uh, we've uh, trod some of the same dirt together over the years. So I, I like what he's doing. I like that he is taking wine seriously um, and bringing it to an audience that doesn't know that much about wine, presumably, and, mm-hmm. and also using the food culture to do that. Uh, sometimes when I see people do that kind of whatever you want to call it, highbrow, lowbrow or, or mass audience thing. I find it exceedingly disappointing to the point of sometimes just being awful, mm-hmm. uh, you know, junk food pairings and things like that. Sure. Wine and stuff. Yep. It, it, the thing is you have to still respect the wine regardless of the sort of European colonial history of it all. I mm-hmm. think you still have to respect the essence of wine, the fact that it's an agricultural beverage, the fact that it's something to be, uh, enjoyed in moderation and to be discussed. Um, and the varying levels of that, totally up to whomever is doing it. Um, and I think Jermaine's doing a great job of keeping that aspect of wine while uh, enmeshing it with a different food culture. Sure. And and really speaking to, as you say before, like uh, an entire, you know, uh, group of people that maybe are not, you know, that well-versed in wine or don't know too much about it. And I think there is definitely a um, a big gap, I would say, um, you know, I talk to a lot of distillers and winemakers and there's always a perception that wine is a little bit more, um, you know, if you're going to talk about wine, you have to know more about it. People, you know, they don't feel as easy um, to connect with it. Um, and, you know, it, it does have a tendency, especially the wine world in general, of being a little bit more out of reach for certain people. They don't try because mm-hmm. they think it's too much work. So right. I wonder, you know, especially in your profession, what do you see, especially like with Wine Spectator, how the wine world is going to continue on and be able to really capture the attention in a way with either younger people, people outside of the the regular cultural norms that are drinking wine, you know, like what is the wine world going to have to do to stay really relevant and keep bring those people in? This is a question that I've been asking and wrestling with uh, probably for the last 15 years of my career now as I have moved up and, and dealing more with writing in-depth reports. And, you know, you look back over 25 years, in some ways I've been saying the same thing for 25 years. Here's the vintage. This is what happened. These are the wines, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of thing. And you know that your hardcore reader is following along with that. But then you sort of wonder, well, who am I turning on to wine by doing this? I'm not really sure who that is, but I know that based on subscriptions and the reach of the magazine that there's clearly as much now as there was 25 years ago in terms Mm -hmm. of who we're connecting with. I don't think we're connecting with 27 year olds who are just getting into wine. I think it's definitely a, you know, 45 and up kind of crowd. I get Mm -hmm. it. And I've I've been thinking about, well, how do you connect? So that's why I've tried Instagram and other things to sort of reach different audiences. But what I'm beginning to sort of realize, although I'm resisting this realization because I don't want to become calcified in my beliefs, the best things in life are not easy. You can't just fall into wine and get an ABCs and know everything. It should be a little daunting because it is complex. It is Mm -hmm. 
uh, multifaceted. It is from all over the world and all different cultures and all different languages. And it is something that takes time and you have to prepare the wine and prepare the glass and prepare the meal. And these are things that are not easy. And I think that's where the reward is. And so I think just culturally, whether it's the current generation or America in general, or, or the sense of um, immediacy and consumerism that, that prevails, that just needs to shift or people need to exit from that rubric and sit down with a bottle of wine and understand that this is something to discuss and take time with. Right. And I, and I do see that shift from time to time. So it's encouraging, but it's not widespread. Right. Well, I feel like, and, and I've said this before and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face, but part of my thing, I, I was actually telling Kevin yesterday, interviewing you was a little more daunting to me because I, I actually went to school for journalism and once upon a time, I thought I was going to work in journalism. I worked in magazines for a little while, writer. Um, and then I ended up in this career of wine and spirits. So for 20 years, I've either worked in restaurants or as a distributor or a supplier. And I, I feel like I'm able to kind of uh, connect more with regular people about wine because I come mm-hmm. to it from a place of I kind of fell into this. I don't have any type of special skills. I don't. I mean, I've I've developed skills over the years, but I, I'm I'm like you, and I'm going to try to make the, make this as accessible as possible for you. I'm talking to you, meaning everyone the same, um, and uh, you know, and then and that works for me in the industry that I'm in because like I, I kind of just like well, I'm here and I work my way up, so I must be good at it. Whereas like talking with you seemed a little more <laughs> daunting because I was like. I'm a little more nervous. I don't know. I don't know why. It's because it, you you represent this um, industry that I always aspired to be in. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's I don't know. I guess the, it all it all comes down to like making things accessible and feeling like I I felt like I could reach out to you and I feel like uh, you because you have that um, that energy of like I'm on social media. I'm sharing wine in a way that makes sense. I'm talking about pairings and. And that's, I feel like wholesale in the wine industry, there's not as much of that as there should be. We need more people who are going to talk about booze and talk about their experiences with it in a way that is accessible. Well, I think the industry was built on people who came to it not necessarily knowing wine culture per se and learned on the fly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my generation, we we learned through true apprenticeship, with, like my time at the retailer, where you just, you followed someone along and your job was to show up, shut up and keep up and, <laughs> and just absorb and be a sponge. True. You know, today it's a little different. Today it's index cards and flashcards and, and memorization and things like that. I think they're both viable ways to learn. Um, the question is, how do you then, you know, activate that knowledge into uh, other people and turn them on to things? I think, mm-hmm. you know, the person who has innate ability might be a terrible communicator. The person who's a great communicator might not know what they're talking about. So <laughs> you, you need to find that... <laughs> find the difference there or find the find the balance there um i'm try. i realize that i work at an institution that's been around for 40 years i i understand um the way some people see the magazine uh i i'm a big believer in the magazine i think that tasting blind and we're the only major outlet that does it is mm-hmm. incredibly important to the process of reviewing wines i think um you know we speak in a way that we could be understood by beginners even if they haven't had the necessary experience to to try the wines that we're telling them about. Mm-hmm. And I think that patience um, and respecting that institution from my perspective is, has helped me get to where I am. At the same time, I understand what you're saying and I, I would like to have this sort of wider and more e- immediate connection with a lot of people. 
But again, the, these things don't come easy. And that's, that's sure. the fun of the pursuit. Sure. Speaking of pursuits, what, what else do uh, you got planned for yourself? I mean, you're going to write a book. Have you, are you writing a book? Uh, no, the, the book thing gets thrown at me often, but I, I have zero interest in writing a wine book. I find that they are out of date uh, about six months before they go to print. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the stuff in there, I just, it doesn't, I don't get it. And I, I'm a man of, of books and letters and, and I have a typewriter and I, you know, I love the written word, but the, the wine book to me just doesn't, doesn't fit. I, everything I do goes into the magazine or on our website and, and the blogs and, and articles mm-hmm. that I write. So any book that I write would basically just be a compendium of that. And again, at this point, it's out of date. That's the, you know, that's really hard part of wine journalism. And I do call it wine journalism more than mm-hmm. wine writing or other things. I think there are people in the industry in my position who are essentially bon vivants. And I say that with respect because wine is to be enjoyed, um, but they're not journalists. Journalists are different. Journalists are, you know, objective and they take themselves out of the equation as much as they can. They approach it anthropologically, mm-hmm. uh, observe and report. And, um, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and the moment I write an article about someone, it's essentially going to go out of date within months because there's a new vintage. The winemaker changes, the owner changes, uh, they buy a new vineyard, right? There's, it's impossible to keep up. It's just the exponential growth of the industry um, is just amazing. And so, again, another challenge, not easy, but mm-hmm. that's, you have to look at it as that's the fun of it to just try and stay on top of it. The book is not the way to do that. I, don't think. <laughs> I, I always feel like uh, journalists um, have the best stories because they've, they've interviewed, you know, so many different types of people. Is there anyone that stands out to you as um, someone that you either had an incredible time with or had amazing uh, stories or was just insane? <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of insane winemakers out there, and I say that with uh, all due love for them. I mean, they live in rural areas, uh, and they and they uh, you know they farm and they they work all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's no weekends, there's no holidays, so they're they are a special breed. Um, you know, some of the best stories I'll probably keep private, but there's been ah, some fun ones. I think I think I think Jean Louis Schaub is certainly a character um, that I have a tremendous respect for, and I always learn from, and. Um, We've had some great, um, maybe not a singular moment, but watching him for 20 some odd years that I've been covering the Rhone and seeing the terraces that he's re- uh, rejuvenated on the hills above his uh, domain in the town of Mauve um, and bringing those back to life has been an absolutely fascinating process. Uh, I've seen a lot of vineyards get planted within a year. I don't think I've ever seen uh, on the scale of over 20 years, such a small amount of vineyard being replanted with the attention to detail that, that he has done. Hmm. Um, then there's, you know, there's uh, Paul, the late Paul Pontellier from Chateau Margaux, who was a master salesman in the true blue blazer Bordelais way, but was also a, a kind human being and very introspective and had his own self-doubts too. And I once asked him, I said, have you ever made a perfect wine? Because, you know, there's a lot of hundred points out there. None of them have ever come from me. Um, and I said, have you ever made a perfect wine? What do you think about it? And he said, Every time I think I make a perfect wine, two or three vintages later, I realize I wish I knew then what I know now. Hmm. And that was that was all I needed to know about the sense of perfection in wine was if if the winemaker at Chateau Margaux was saying, oh, I wish I could go back and redo that, then you know it's probably not attainable. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's incredible. Have you ever given anyone 100 points? No, I, 
have not given 100 points in print at Wine Spectator. A couple of my former colleagues uh, did, but uh, the magazine has not given out 100 in quite some time at this point. Wow. So it's 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 almost unattainable, right? Because there's always room for... I mean, I tell people, look, I don't have a, a limit. I'm not saying I won't do it. I just, it'll happen when it happens. But, the, you know, the concept that something that takes so much of human, the human hand in it, inherently is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on that, and also once you do that, you're you're locked in. You're basically saying that 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 wine is the ultimate, and right. everything else gets judged against it. And I yeah, think and it'll never be back, better than this. <laughs> and it'll be better than that. And and then what happens is you know you look back on some of those hundred point wines five, ten, fifteen years down the road, and you're like, whoa, <laughs> not happening. Right. Um, I get it. It's an emotional reaction at the time, but again, I think that's the difference between bon vivants and journalists. Um, you know, I. Mm. Ask a movie critic what's a perfect movie. I think the serious critic will say, well, this probably hasn't been a perfect movie, but, you know, this one comes close or that one. It's the same thing. There's always some place to go. There's always some some improvement that can be made, some tweak, something new. So you must have a really uh, structured, like, set of parameters within each uh, score range then that you're trying to, like, hit. Because, I mean, giving a, a, a wine a number is is very hard to do anyway, especially as you said, there's so much variation and, but that's, that's gotta be really hard to, to just assign a number to it. <laughs> like this, this is a one point less than, than that one, you know, it just yeah. it seems. Hard. I mean, it comes with, when you talk about how, well, how do you learn about wine? How do you get into it? How do you work your way up? You always tell people, well, you just got to taste. You really got to sit down and taste. And so I have the benefit of access to a lot of wines and, um, you know, I'm also f- basically forced to taste continuously. So that aspect doesn't stop. So I, going back to that mental image of the bookshelf, right? That that, that frame of reference is constantly growing. So I, if I sit down to a flight of 2019 Poyac, I'm going to be able to move through it pretty quickly because I do that all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't find it difficult to put the score on it from a mental perspective. I understand the aesthetic argument that some people are making. Um, the reality is, the score isn't any more important than the note, and the note is probably more important than the score. Sure. And again, if you're removing yourself from the equation and focusing on quality first, style second, hopefully the readers catch on to that. So there might be wineries that I give high scores to that I, you know, I wouldn't buy from my own cellar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, scores from wines with polar opposite styles that get the same score because qualitatively speaking. They're that good an example of that particular style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you can get to that point, the rest starts to fall into place pretty easily. Mm. You might come across something that's you know, really stylistically extreme, and that might give you pause, and that, that is something that's difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it would probably be orange wines, mm. uh, oxidized wines, uh, versus oxidative-styled wines. Mm-hmm. Um, I like oxidatively-styled wines. I don't like oxidized wines. My personal breaking point in that is probably different from people that love orange wines and can't drink, you know, non-orange wines right? Uh, and vice versa. So I'm trying to find the fulcrum point or the the median there so that someone who doesn't like orange wines, if I write a review about an orange wine that's good, they might say, okay, well, now I got to try that. Sure. Not because I personally may or may not like it, but I'm just saying this is an excellent example of that style. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be very hard. Uh, we were actually talking about orange wines on another episode. Um, it's a very divisive uh, mm-hmm. category of wines. But what's what's the most wines you've ever tasted in like a day? 
I'm always wondered about. Um, there's been some days when I'm tasting barrel samples in Bordeaux. I think I hit 180 one day. Uh, so 150 to 180 was something. Um, I do not do that anymore. Um, even the days of seeing four or five or six producers in a day are over for me. When I was young, I was gung-ho and wound up and excited, and I thought it was cool and uh, you know self-important to do that. Uh, as I uh, reach a more mature phase in my life, I'm, I'm willing to uh, move a little more steadily and more methodically. I'm glad I did it. I, mm-hmm. I'm glad I pushed myself in those ways, but um, not to be done ever again. I don't believe in the, the macho mass tastings. My, my typical <laughs> flight uh, is 20 wines. I do yeah. about 20 wines, but I do that every single day. Wow. You must take scrupulous notes because I know um, I've been in situations where I've had to taste many different full spectrum spirits and wine in a day. You know, we've got a million suppliers that have come see us and they each have like eight wines. And if you're not taking scrupulous notes, I can see how like you lose track of where you are pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, I've got a little bit of a, a shorthand. Uh, sometimes people on my Instagram feed, they see, they see my notebooks and stuff and they're like, what is that chicken scratching? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, trust me, you're never going to figure it out. But I, I wouldn't say they're scrupulous, but they are copious. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, there, there was also a time where I took a note on every single wine tasted, even if it wasn't for review, even just a casual thing at dinner. And again, over time, I realized, look, there's times where you can put the notebook away and you can just enjoy the wine with dinner or you can talk about it, but you don't have to treat it as pure intellectual exercise all the mm-hmm. time. And that also helps because um, it's not unlike if you wear glasses every now and then, you have to take your glasses off and focus on something in the distance uh, just to sort of recalibrate. You have mm-hmm. to do the same thing with your palate. Your palate's going to appreciate it. Your, your brain's going to pick up on things, but it's okay to just file away the fact that, yeah, I had that and it was good. Yeah. And, and just move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yep. I, I wonder how many uh, of your friends or family are really nervous to have you over. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're happy because they know I'm going to bring wine. I, oh, I there you go. The, it's like, oh, we have side. this wine, but don't drink any of it. You're going to hate it. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I also like it when people bring me something that I've never you know, heard of or seen before, and they might not be a wine person. I, I don't care. Just throw it down on the table. Let's see Got like happens. a foot on the label and you're like, get out of my house. <laughs> no, no, I never do that. I mean, you know, wine is to be inclusive and we shouldn't be judging. I get where you're coming from. I, I, no, you, and sometimes you, there you are some funny moments, but yeah. You can say that. I'm going to judge. I'm going to fully say <laughs> I, I'm okay dying on this hill. Um, I made an agreement with my husband a long time ago. We went to a wedding um, and he knew, he knows nothing about wine. Um, and he's like, do you want me to get you some wine? And I said, sure. I said, what are the rules? And he goes, if there's an animal, a foot or a flip-flop on the label, hard pass. I said, correct. Okay. You can go right. get me some more. It's but a you know, pretty, you know, good, pretty good rule. Yeah, but there is a unicorn and a horse on the Pego label, so you might be uh, – that, you, know, you don't want to get strict be, with that rule. Yes, but that's not going to be like a wedding buffet, like unless you're at like the Rockefellers, you know, <laughs> like, like in, a, in like, uh, uh, Dubai or something. <laughs> right. There's, uh, there's, dolphin, there's dolphins on the label of shop. I think there's dolphins on the label. Yeah. Some kind of fish, yeah. Then I, I guess I, that would be a lesson, a hard lesson for me to learn. I probably don't have friends who would have that kind of wine at their wedding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you doing this and, and taking the time. Um, I know you're very busy. I will continue to follow your social media and just ogle it in general and ogle the wines you drink on a daily basis and just know we're all we're all out here following you, man. We love it. Well, I, I appreciate it and the magazine appreciates it. Um, I, I work with the team. And even if uh, the stuff that I do seems individual on my social media, it's because I, I work at a magazine called Wine Spectator and I have a great team that works with me. And uh, 
edits my stuff and makes me look good and makes me read well and makes me sound like I know what I'm doing. All your photos, were you holding the bottle like this? Like, yeah, my oh. my Wine Wednesday posts. Yeah, love it. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get a, a team. <laughs> you know, it's it's fun. Like I said, we were talking just off off mic before. You know, it's it's a time suck on social media, but if it if it if it gets people turned on to wine in some way and they decide I want to see what's going on there, then I'm all for it. Yep. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, being uh, being here. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 